As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we'll react to England's draw against Germany in Munich. Should Jack Grealish be a super starter or a super sub? We'll also be talking about Harry Kane's impact in the team. Is he really the Harry Kane that we see week in, week out in the Premier League? We'll also be talking about the Nations League and its importance to Scotland and their manager, Steve Clark. We'll talk about football policing on the continent. Matt Lawton's been out to Munich to observe how their police do it. And we'll also react to some of the big transfer rumours this summer. This is the game. Hello again. Welcome to the Game Podcast uh, from The Times. I'm Hugh Wisencroft alongside Jonathan Northcroft and Gregor Robertson. I'm looking back at the week's Nation League games involving my beloved England, their beloved Scotland. We'll also look later on uh, at some of the big transfers being mooted in the Premier League. But let's begin with England, who who bounced back slightly, didn't they, against Germany after that defeat to Hungary, went to Munich on a Tuesday night and earned themselves a one-all draw with Germany coming from behind thanks to a Harry Kane penalty. But it is fair to say at this point we aren't yet, in my opinion at least, seeing a side that is likely to lift the World Cup. And that has got a lot of people worried. We're going to talk about Gareth Southgate's approach very, very shortly. But there are a couple of notable England performances that we should mention. Firstly, let's begin with Jack Grealish because he had a great impact off the bench. The question is really, what's his role going to be in this England squad? Our writers in the Times have tried to decide on what his best role is. And it's fair to say, opinion was divided over super sub, or super starter. So that's where we begin. Where where do you think he should play, Gregor? On the bench or in the starting eleven? When he comes on and makes an impact like that, the, the kind of reaction is to think that he should be a starter. But on the other hand, he's, he makes when when games are, are kind of so stretched at that period when he enters, he finds more space. So you can see the kind of the logic in him being an impact sub, sub as well. And it's a it's an area of England's attack that has so much competition. The only thing that I find peculiar about about Jack Grealish um, and his England career is that Southgate seems to kind of hold him to different standards to, to other players. You know, he's mentioned um, after the game that he needs to he needs to defend better or he needs to do more defend the uh, defensive work if he's going to be a regular star. Um, I, I don't know if that's fair to be brutally honest. And he's also, and you know, in the past, I, I sort of, that brought to mind as well for me when the year he spent. In the championship for Aston Villa, that was another kind of another reason that Southgate gave for, for first of all not calling him up, and now you know there's different reasons for for not starting him. And and he's held up. He seems to be held up to a different standard. Remember, Mason Mount got a call up after 12, 12 games for uh, for Derby County in the championship that same season. So 
there just always seems to be something. And I, look, that's that's just down to, to Gareth Southgate. If you're asking me personally, he absolutely can be a starter. Um, but there are there, that is England's strongest area uh, in their squad, undoubtedly. And uh, you know, it doesn't mean he should always be a starter. But if he comes on and he makes an impact like that, there's no reason why he shouldn't start the next game. What do you think, Johnny? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating question actually because the, the kind of debate about him being a substitute sort of presupposes that you know being a substitute is a kind of downgraded role in football, and I actually think that as we evolve, there's there's room for substitutes to sort of be rethought. And and actually, you know, if you look at how they do it in rugby and they call them finishers rather than substitutes these days, and look upon them as specialists, um, that. I think players might start to get identified on the basis that these are brilliant guys to bring on with 20, 30 minutes to go. And I actually think Jack Grealish could be a, a real example of that for England because it, his best impact in an England shirt has been changing the game late on. And he is, he's got so many tools that make him a good substitute. Um, you know, principally he's, he, he, he runs with the ball, you know, he, 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 he dribbles, with confidence, directness, and against the tiring defence, um, that can be a nightmare. But he's also it's his personality. I think he he thrives off that that sort of moment of being sent on with the crowd roaring him on. Um, that kind of you know the stage being set for a hero. That's that's Jack's personality. He embraces that. He 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 grows from that rather than feels a pressure, and also maybe the idea of having something to prove seems to motivate him. So, I he'll want to play, of course, but I, I sort of think we're debating this as if he should be more than a substitute. Actually, you know, if you're the game changer and you're the substitute and you're the hero because of that, then maybe that is a role in itself that's really worth cherishing. I think there are games he could start without a doubt depending on the opposition but i would i would suggest that that you know they've actually found maybe by accident a really good role for him and we shouldn't be looking at it at it too negatively and actually seeing this as a you know imagine imagine if this became his thing and and you were then sending him on in world cup games and it was even in the opposition's mind that oh no you know the super subs coming on i think that would even enhance his his quality so it, I don't see it as a negative, um, and uh, I, I think his best role for the time being in most big games could could be this. But what's wrong with that? I, I think it's quite clear. I agree with you, Johnny. That the the substitute's role is is I think it's perfect for Jack Grealish. To be perfectly honest, um, I think what I would say just about international football generally, and, and I think we're going to come to the formations and stuff in a while with Gareth Southgate and some of the criticism that he's had, but. Generally speaking, um, the best international sides, it's its weird, right? You almost know exactly what substitutions the manager's going to make and exactly what time. And I do think that helps a team in international football to have set roles, if you like. We've heard about it in rugby union, you know, the finishers coming on with very specific attributes to do very specific things at specific times in games. I'm eager to see England get to a point where we're very settled in the starting 11, which I always say it, and we're, we're heading that way again, getting into the tournament and not knowing exactly what the best starting 11 should be. We're going to have all those arguments again, I'm sure, throughout the next six months. Um, but I, I do think if they can settle on the best 11, 
they also can settle on the best sort of three subs to use. Obviously, there are different reasons for using substitutions and different circumstances. But generally speaking, you know, three strong players that come off the bench that we know can can perform to their best in an England shirt, whether they start or not, to be perfectly honest. And I think Jack Grealish is certainly putting himself, he's certainly put himself on the top of that list in terms of the substitutes. I just wonder, there's always going to be a case for Raheem Sterling starting, but I just find it weird, and we're going to get to it anyway, like I say, that he's been moved about in an England shirt, even being so effective uh, in a very particular position. But there you go. Look, anyway, we're going to get to it. Another player I wanted to talk about, and maybe it's similar. It's it's going to be one side or the other. Um, we've 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 had, you know, with Jack Greed, a super sub or super starter. I think when it comes to Harry Kane, it's going to be underperformer or overperformer because Kane scored his 50th England goal and it got so many people talking about whether he is the greatest England striker of all time, which I, I, I do disagree with. I don't think he is just yet. I think there is more to come from Harry Kane in an England shirt. I think there's more to come from him right now, to be perfectly honest, because as good as he's been in front of goal with his goal-scoring record, um, I actually think Harry Kane could perform better in an England shirt. We could get a better Harry Kane, and I don't blame him specifically for that. I actually think the fact that we haven't got a cohesive attacking pattern of play system in either, in, in fact, in any, it could be one of three systems that England choose to play. They never really seem to create the best goal-scoring opportunities for him. And he never really seems to be the Harry Kane that we see in a, in a Tottenham shirt, um, who, who's really that focal point the play goes through. And we don't have that for England. I do think there is more that we could get from Harry Kane. So the question to you guys, underperformer or overperformer in an England shirt? Gregor? <laughs> I'm going to sit very much on the fence and say he's been both. <laughs> he is, because there are, uh, you know, you're saying there's games where we've not seen the uh, kind of play go through him enough. I think there have been several, plenty of games actually that he's been a really big focal point for England. Um, and look, you're, you're right. There are there are moments, there are games as well where the kind of lack of that uh, coherent attacking uh, system uh, means you're not getting the best out of Harry Kane. But I mean, we've gone around the circle, around the houses many times about about um, Gareth Southgate's England side and the fact the, the, the biggest the most important fact is that he scored 10 goals in major tournaments which is uh, joint leading with Gary Lineker um, of any England striker so you know you can you've got to 50 goals and there's a lot made of that and, and you look, look people look back at who they were against and whether they were you know against decent opposition or not I think he got four hat-tricks against Panama, Bulgaria, Montenegro, and, and Albania. But taking all that away, he scored goals for England at major tournaments and been a huge part of the last two two successful tournaments, which you still have to say they have been for England. Johnny, what do you think? I, I'd echo that and, and say, um, you know, first of all, no striker scores all the goals against the top teams. I remember looking back when Wayne Rooney broke the record and realizing that actually, you know, Bobby Charlton's got a few against Luxembourg, for example, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like this phenomenon of scoring against quote unquote easy opposition is a new thing. And actually, as Gregor said, Harry's the joint record tournament scorer for England. And only only six of his fifty goals have come in friendlies, which I think is pretty impressive and none of his 14 assists so that shows um that he is you know 
he's, he's performing in competitive matches. Um, I think he, he himself is, is, you can't do much more than get to 50 goals quicker than Lewandowski did, quicker than Messi did, quicker than Ronaldo did. That's, that's pretty impressive. I do know what you're saying though, Hugh, in that sometimes you see him for Spurs looking like, you know, a, well, being a player that absolutely dominates a game. And I was at the Etihad when he dominated Manchester City in, in I think, March or, or February. I mean, they bought an incredible performance. I don't think we've seen maybe that level for England too often, but he does play with Son for Spurs. He does have this sidekick who's out of this world. And I think that affects him um not you know him and Sterling have a great relationship but it's not quite him and Son so I think that's something else to to factor in I'd just suggest that of all England's issues Harry Harry Kane um whether he's a 8 out of 10 or a 9 out of 10 is is probably one of the smaller issues that they face yeah it's a very good point you raised there Jonathan should we move on to England's issues then <laughs> Gareth Southgate shrugging off criticism um, that's in the Times Henry Winter's written about Gareth Southgate saying he's doing what's right for England lots of criticism um, maybe not necessarily after the Germany game certainly after the Hungary defeat the first 70 or so minutes against Germany you know if you looked on social media which we always say is a bad barometer but even if you looked around some of the big sports journalists in the country ex-players you know people weren't pleased in particular I think with a a big lack of possession that England had it wasn't the worst performance in the world but once again I'll harp back to it it doesn't matter what competition it is if you can control matches um, it doesn't necessarily mean if you have a higher percentage of possession but if you have good quality possession um, and you do something with the ball when you have it um, then I think you're more conducive to being a successful side and at the moment Again, I, I may be being hypercritical. I don't currently see that for from England. I certainly didn't see it for the first 70 minutes or so uh, against Germany. But Gareth Southgate, like I said, says he is doing what is right for England. I, I wonder whether you guys think Southgate is beginning to stumble. For me, it feels like things are, instead of becoming more refined in this England team and squad, Things are getting a little bit frayed, which isn't what you want to be happening happening in the year of, of a World Cup. What do you think, Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, having seen them in Budapest, that was a, a pretty alarming performance. And England were better against Germany, but not you know, not not enormously better. I would say they, they they had a really good last fifteen to twenty minutes, which glossed over what had been a. a, a a performance where I think Germany were were clearly much better in possession, much better at filling the spaces. Um, a little bit alarmingly for England, looked like they'd moved up a significant step from the Euros last year, whereas England probably just about the same level. And and I think what you see with Germany is is a really good manager who has had a lot of those players at club level, has built a team almost around the players that he had at Bayern Munich and Germany looked, they had the slickness and um, fluidity and understanding of a club team. And, and we haven't quite seen England click in that way um, in the last, you know, since, since the Euros. So I, I, I don't want to read too much into, into these games in the sense that, you know, end of a season, he's using them to experiment um, everything will be will come down to the World Cup, but it hasn't been so far that kind of confidence boosting um, 
you know, Nations League campaign. It hasn't, we haven't sort of watched it and thought, yeah, yeah, they're, they're building towards a tournament. And there's a, there's a sort of nagging, nagging doubt about that. Um, it's, it's all, look, the Gareth Southgate's entire reign is, is, is building towards 2022. I think he's done enough to earn our patience. And let's just, let's just judge him on that. What they did do in Munich was showed that character that he's instilled in the team, and which is the reason they've got to a final and a semi-final. Despite being outplayed, they, they hung in and for 15 minutes were good enough to almost win it. And that is different to the England sides that we've seen in the past. And that remains, I think, Gareth's biggest contribution where, is England, where England are concerned. Gregor, what do you think about um, Gareth Southgate's England at the moment? Are they beginning to stumble? They certainly don't look like they're getting stronger, but but maybe I am overreacting to these two performances. That's been known, Hugh. <laughs> 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 look, in football, you're always moving forwards or you're moving backwards. And it's been like a little half step backwards in the last couple of games for England. Nothing serious. I think Johnny summed it up perfectly, really. I think, and you, you have to give great credit to Germany. They looked, you know, the way they pressed England in the first half. England could hardly get out of their own half in, in early periods. And, you know, Jordan Pickford looked flummoxed every time he had the ball. He was looking for passes, but couldn't really find one. Um, and I think Germany deserved credit for that. Um, so, but I, I agree with Johnny. I think Southgate has, has, definitely done enough to earn patience and more than that trust I think I think that there will continue to be and I don't think it'll ever go away a debate about his uh, kind of coaching credentials when uh, parallels are drawn with the real elite and Andy Flick has kind of pretty much proven himself to be an elite coach and his team looked that way so that's another reason why England and his decision to play kind of a little bit more conservatively on a uh, in the big games uh, has merit. You know that's the way that's the way England England can win in, with big players and big moments and and frustrate opposition. So you know as much as you look at the squad and think you want to see them take the you know have the impetus and really play on the front foot, it may not be the best way for England to succeed in Qatar. Yeah, I, I, look, I tend to agree with you on that. And I think we should look ahead to the Italy game on that basis. What sort of approach should Gareth Southgate be taking this weekend? We've seen a 3-4-3. We've seen a 4-2-3-1. I think a lot of people want to see an attacking 4-3-3. Um, he, he will probably get more criticism for, for playing in a different formation because it probably will send a message out that maybe he's experimenting a lot or doesn't quite know what his best side or best approach is. I think he'll have to he'll have to play one of the first two systems. Um, I also don't know if necessarily there there is a better England in an attacking four three three. Whether that's something that just the fans call for because they see the players, uh, especially at the big clubs, play that you know week in week out. Um, I think for England, what's been best for them is the three four three. I think he'll he'll continue with that now in the next two games because I think if he you know if he was experimenting against Germany it didn't really work in the four two three one he's got the players there for the four three excuse me he's got the players there for the three four three so he might as well stick with it because that's what's worked best for him. How would you play, Johnny? No, I I I wouldn't play three four three in these games because like you're right, you he, he knows it works for him. I think it's kind of almost locked down. I almost don't see the need to rehearse it. And I think he should be looking on that 3-4-3 as, you know, that's what I revert to if I can't make 
something better work. And I do think four three three still holds out that potential of being better for England because they've got talent that they they you know could do with getting on the pitch. And uh, you know Jude Bellingham, I'd say, is is one of those. And I'd like to see Jude Bellingham in a, in a proper three man midfield and not having to try and play a pseudo-holding role, which is what he's been asked to do in the last two games. Because you saw how, I mean, his pressing was unbelievable at times. He was their best attacking threat. He was. You know, his his ability to nick a ball and create a chance on the edge of the opposition's penalty box. He was their best attacking threat for until the the last 20 minutes. He he was. And, you know, you can nick a ball and do something with it. And that's that's such a combination, isn't it? And I'd like to see him in, in that role and... I, I, you know, we talk about the fullbacks a lot, but you know, f- forget Trent Alexander-Arnold for a moment because I don't think he's going to play the next two games. But, but I'd like to see Rhys James being given proper attacking license in a in a in a four-three-three. Um, so I, I, I think I think that I think that's what that's what Gareth should be looking at if he's asking how do we how do I move England on that that extra little step. I think it, I think it is four three three and putting more of the talent on the pitch and we haven't seen that in the last two games. It was three four three in Hungary and I think against Germany, although it was a back four, again England had like a sort of flat two man midfield and not enough in that central area. And it's it's not just about formations; it's actually about filling the the areas and the spaces properly, which. You know, it's funny, Jack Grealish was talking about how um, I play with more freedom for England because at Man City it's more structured. And that's been seen as a positive from England. I, I see that as a negative. I mean, Man City are more structured because Pep Guardiola has a very fine understanding of what spaces to fill on the pitch, what rotations to have in order to always have overloads and extra men looking for possession. And, and England don't have that. And that's what they should be trying to work towards or should have been trying to work towards. So that, that's what I'd like to see, a 4-3-3 against Italy with more men in the middle. I mean, England keep getting outnumbered in midfield. He's got to find better ways to do that. And Tammy Abraham playing, that'd be the other thing. It, it's, it's, you know, it's time to really give him a go and, 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 and arrive at the, Euros, at, the, at the World Cup with a proper um, understudy of Kane and not just kind of, you know, bits, bits and pieces players around Harry Kane. We can get fixated on formations and the point that Johnny just made there about England playing with two, two old, basically two old midfielders, they still, as you know, they still managed to find, Musiala still managed to find loads of pockets of space even before Phillips went off. Um, it wasn't effective. So it's not it's not necessarily about the formations, about what these guys are doing to fill the, as Johnny says, to fill the space. And Germany's biggest threat was, you know, Havertz could go in behind and stretch the defence and we know he's clever at linking up play as well but his ability to do that meant there was too much space between England's back four and and midfield two and and Rice looked often quite isolated Um, and Musiala was was really impressive, he looked like a player who England England would be a little bit disappointed he got away. Yeah, listen, I, I saw Musiala in that game but I've seen him, you know, for Bayern Munich and I, I was one of those desperate, you know, you're, you're desperate for Gareth Southgate to possibly give him a call up almost before he's ready so he doesn't go to Germany because I think Germany were at a low ebb in terms of what they've done in international football. There was a great opportunity for him to play there. I know he says he feels now more German, 
but he was in the England under-21s. He just, you know, there are so many good players in that England squad. He, he has an attacking sense to his game as well. And I think if you put him in, you know, the criticism would have been so widespread. Had Jamal Musiala got an England call-up and was being given England games, um, despite the fact he's such a talented player. Um but yeah, look, he's one that got away. He's not the first. We've still got a pretty decent squad and we should be taking on the best in the world and very confident with what we've got. Really interested to see, intrigued to see what England can do against Italy at the weekend, even though I know it's not the greatest Italy side either. Well, let's talk about Scotland next. We've got two experts in the house. Um, Scotland beating Armenia two goals to nil at Hampton. Thanks to Anthony Ralston's first international goal on his first Scotland start. Scott McKenna scored his first uh, Scotland goal as well. Positive start to the Nations League, which, as we know, is so important to Scotland. It's helped them get close to big competitions. But it was important that they got that World Cup disappointment out of the system as well, Johnny. It was, and... That bounce back um, victory does show the, the 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 culture and the the mentality built by Steve Clark. But more than that, it, it was a it was a game where he he really refreshed the lineup. It looked a lot lot younger, um, it looked a bit more like the future. And perhaps that Ukraine defeat will be the end of one cycle. Um, I mean, Anthony Ralston made the headlines, and and he's had a terrific season under. Ange Postacoglu at Celtic and 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 continued that he, he looks like a suddenly Scotland have got some really good young attacking right backs it's, you know they've come along all at once um, and 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 he really looked the part and I quite like the quite like the the, the back three and the sort of fresh profile of it um, with uh, with Suta Hendry and, and and McKenna which again could offer Scotland something a little bit different than than we've had before maybe a bit more mobility and 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 football at the back um, could have been a lot more I mean I think Scotland had some like 27 shots I'm not sure I've, I've, ever, I've ever really seen that um, great hit by John McGinn near the end that came off the crossbar um, very fine margin uh, denying McKenna a second goal so it was probably a 3 or 4 nil victory and, and the Nations League yeah we love it because uh, it's been our ticket in the past and maybe it'll be again yeah look Armenia were brutal let's be honest they they, they looked worse than their 92nd in the world ranking yes they beat Ireland um, but they were really poor I thought and look but it was important to bounce back because that was a real sickener against Ukraine um, and you know still close to 40,000 people turned up to Hamden in you know in the, in the pouring rain in Glasgow uh, even even if, even as the summer and they cheered them on and they gave them, gave them a good performance full of full of energy Scotland moved the ball really well particularly around the kind of edge of the penalty area and Christie and Armstrong linking up well and uh, Armstrong's a player you're talking about Grealish who you know he's a kind of impact super sub for England Armstrong slightly developed that and I think he's a bit unfortunate to have for Scotland as well he's someone who who's you know can carry the ball is creative um, and he can get a goal and I think I thought he was really really impressive um, but as Johnny says as well it's about the fact that some you know there's some new new blood coming through as well um, and a chance for McKenna as well who's going to be a Premier League player next season and yeah, it was a positive night, absolutely, and I think it was it was interesting that Clark made the point that you know he praised uh, Robertson as captain, McGinn, McGregor as big big characters and leaders to kind of in the changing room beforehand to say, look, we need to forget that because this 
as you said, this is this is how Scotland got to the Euros. This was <laughs> Alex McLeish's part and gift was to to give us a playoff, and that's how we got to the Euros. So you know, this is valuable for us. And if we beat Ireland, Ireland will be uh, pointless after three games. Um, and it'll look very much like us in Ukraine uh, going head to head for the group. Yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll come to what might happen in Dublin this weekend. Just generally speaking, Steve Clark at the moment, Johnny, is it how important is it for him, do you think, that this campaign in the Nations League goes well? Uh, imagine, let's look further down the line, that, that Scotland don't top the group. Um, you know, is it all about getting to the Euros next time around for his job? I think it absolutely is. Um there has been a backlash since um, failing to to beat Ukraine, and I actually think rightly so. But I was pretty disappointed at the conservatism in that game, um, and you know, two things: playing playing the sort of yeah two number nines and and trying to go a bit direct, and also just not really mentally embracing the, 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 the occasion properly, it, it reminded me so much of that Czech Republic game at the start of the Euros and, and another missed opportunity. So it did, it did raise question marks about, you know, is he, is he continuing to push Scotland on or is there a bit of stasis here? And I think he needs a, 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 a good Europa Europa uh, Nations League uh, campaign. It's hard to remember what they're all called now. Nations <laughs> <laughs> Conference Europa League. So campaign. many competitions. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever they're playing, and he needs to do well. I think just to just to restore the the kind of doubters like me a little bit. I think the win, the possible win against the Republic of Ireland this weekend, like Gregor pointed out, could be absolutely massive for Scotland. Um, certainly would be a, a great start to the Nations League for them. What sort of team do you think he will put? out this weekend what sort of approach do you think he will have against a Republic of Ireland side which has been in good form um, only lost I think twice in the last 12 or 13 games one of those of course being last time out yeah I think there'll be there'll be some changes I think uh, McTominay will come back in I'm sure um, but it's going to be really interesting Ralston made a, obviously a, a huge impact and you would have expected Patterson who's you know recently uh, left Rangers for Everton to be to be the man to to step into into the wing back role on the right there but Ralston Ralston was outstanding full of energy all night get got to the byline several times put crosses in it wasn't just his goal so um yeah I expect uh, I still think Patterson might get the nod because he's he's a real talent um and uh, you know Ireland yes they've been in re- reasonable form but I think I still think look at this Ireland team and think it's probably one of the worst in uh, my memory really there's not many players playing in the Premier League for Ireland now which they always had they've always had some big you know real big players real kind of stars uh, and they don't really have many there's a lot of championship footballers in the Ireland team now so I, I think Scotland should go there and, and take the game to them yeah, it's a great chance. I mean, Ireland have got this horrendous uh, Nations League run now, um, and that'll bring its own sort of pressure. Um, yeah, McTominay might come in definitely. Um, I think what they what we do at the top of the pitch is important. Can't go back to um, Dykes and Adams. Adams maybe little question marks. The scoring record isn't that good. Um, and it was interesting, you know, Ross Stewart getting his chance last night off the bench. Um, 
I, I guess the other one I'm just thinking about is Andy Robertson. I'd be surprised if he plays all the the games in this cycle just because he needs a rest. But he's you know he's he's talismanic and and really important. But I just wonder if he might sit one of these out. The other one's Billy Gilmore. I mean, he's it says a lot about his season really his performance against Ukraine too, that you wouldn't be sure that somebody we were talking about as kind of <laughs> a little Span- Spaniard playing for Scotland. <laughs> he's such a technical footballer. I'm not sure he's going to get back in. I think I think McGregor has, has stepped up there and, you know, alongside McGinn, that's probably going to be the Scotland's two there. And there's, the, there's nothing wrong with that because, and you mentioned Pat- Patterson as well, who is talented, but actually what you want in an international setup is having to earn it, not just getting in because, you know, you, you were good in the past. So there's not, nothing wrong if Gilmore has to fight his way back in. Okay, we're going to see what Scotland do at the weekend at the Aviva Stadium. Uh, just to say, Wales uh, were beaten by the Netherlands. Um, listen, they lost it right at the end of the game. About Beckhorst with a great header. Um, Norrington Davies had equalised, what, a couple of minutes beforehand. It was a bit of a, a heartbreaker, but I think in the end, the Netherlands on the balance of play maybe just deserved it. But there is a big game up next for Wales at the weekend. We'll react to it. They host Belgium in the Nations League. Belgium, who did go a goal down against Poland, responded pretty strongly to win 6-1 in the end. So uh, so we'll react to Wales' performance on Monday for sure. Up next, we'll be talking about some of the policing, the football policing that took place in Munich around that England game. And we will also discuss some of the transfer rumours in the Premier League uh, before the end of the podcast. Remember, if you're enjoying it, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed. Now, if you check out the Times app at the moment, you will see our chief sports correspondent, Matt Lawton, has followed up on his fantastic piece about football policing here in the UK by actually heading out to Munich alongside those England fans to take a closer look at how matches are policed on the continent. And Matt joins us now on the Game Podcast. Hi, Matt. Just just tell us about the experience. Yeah, it was it was interesting. Um, it was indeed an idea that grew out of the the stuff we did in February when we spent a weekend in Nottingham with the with the football policing unit. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to then shadow them uh, with England. You know, over the years, 
I've been following the England team since Euro 2000 and have seen some pretty unsavory stuff. Um, only a few years ago that I was in Seville and came out of a restaurant with colleagues and turned a corner and suddenly there was a scene of, you know, police on one side and England fans throwing bottles and chairs on the other side. Um, it's, it is the minority of, of, of England fans who remain a bit of a problem. Um, you know, in Munich this week, if there were four and a half thousand England fans in Bavaria, 4,200 of them enjoyed the city the way you'd want them to. You know, the, 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 the city absorbed them. They were in different bars and restaurants uh, in the various squares having a nice time. However, there is this element who remain a problem, and, and, and that's what I went to look at. Some of the arrests, and there were very, very few, but Nazi salutes is something that obviously, you know, away in Germany, you can almost think that silly, stupid England fans might do something like that. But it obviously harks to something that we we really don't want to see in football. And it was a tragedy for the continent itself. Um, as you, you mentioned, the vast majority of England fans do behave themselves. But are there these, like I say, very few fans that can trigger something a lot bigger? Yeah, the, 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 there is there is a group, and they the, the the sad thing is, Hugh, is that they are predominantly young. Um, I, you know, looking at a lot of them, they didn't look much older than sort of eighteen, nineteen. Um, and the depressing part of what we saw is the fact that they've inherited all the old songs. No surrender to the IRA, ten German bombers, all that nonsense. Um, which you know the, la- the latter song particularly was very offensive in Munich, um, and that you know that that started. We 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 they targeted ob- um, obvious bars, Irish bars, Australian bars, and that sort of stuff started by about five o'clock on Monday. Um, you know they were drinking they were all outside and, and they started singing those kind of songs um, but it got particularly unpleasant a little later the, the German police were quite clever as were the as were the locals in that they were shutting the bars to make them move on um, because when they started to you know when it started to become particularly unpleasant in a certain square the idea was to to shut the bar, the police would sort of move them on and you had that natural dispersal of the group at, at, at which, you know, because it, they didn't stay together. So you, you kept reducing the size of the, of, of the group. Um, but they, they then assembled in this other square outside an Irish bar called the Dubliner. And again, it started to become unpleasant. They started to sing the most offensive songs. It was, you know, my granddad killed your granddad. It was, uh, have you ever seen the Ger- Have you ever seen a German win a war? All this sort of boorish, loutish, you know, moronic behaviour. Um, standing on tables, singing the, this kind of stuff. So at about eleven o'clock, the the police decided once again to shut that bar. So the German uh, riot officers moved in, shut the bar. Um, and the response to that was for these two or 300 lads to turn on the police. And if you can imagine it, we were uh, on one side of the square and, and, and myself and our cameraman, Jack Feeney, were, were, were standing uh, on one side with the, with the British officers and some of the uh, German officers that they were spending the, the the few days with and then you had to your right a large squad of 
German riot police, pretty menacing bunch, if truth be told. And 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 then you had the fans and they're singing 10 German bombers at them. They're goading them. They are inviting them in the way that they do, sort of arms spread, you know, gesturing with their hands to, for them to come towards them. And at the same time, they're inching inching ever closer to the to the to the german police and and a very senior british police officer was stood next to me who said this is this is going to go this is this is this you know what what a bottle had just been thrown and smashed in front of the police um that person was actually arrested immediately because what they didn't realize was there was loads of german police behind them as well and the sort of cowardly acts of throwing from the back of the crowd of england fans um the guy was the guy was grabbed immediately and arrested um but the, the view certainly of the of the british football police was it was very it was it, it was very close to you know the germans losing patience and just going in and starting to arrest people now as it was i thought they showed remarkable restraint given the level of provocation and and what they did do and it is very effective and as i say very intimidating is they kind of they rush in a in a sort of in a group you know very organized military style group and 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 they rushed at the england fans they don't actually engage but that kind of that surge forward was enough to start almost like cattle just moving them out of the square moving the england fans out of the square and then they just they would just drive them on and they did reassemble then in another square in the main square, the Marion Platz. And again, they occupied another bar and they're standing on tables and they're singing all the songs again. Um, but, and then eventually when again, it, you know, it was so unpleasant, particularly for the people working in the bar that they just said, right, that's it. That's enough. And then they, and then they shut that bar. And then th- and on that occasion, they just drove them out of town, just drove them back towards their hotels. Because the thing about it is you is, you know, it, all these cities generally are, can be quite pleasant places, and they just ruin it for everybody. And and and, and the fact it the fact is, you know, it, it suddenly the centre of Munich is a very unpleasant place to be because you've you've just got these guys that don't know how to behave. They're trying to provoke a reaction from from the locals. They're offending everybody. Um, and yeah, we, 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 we you know it, on a you know in 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 it you know in um, uh, we, you know, th- three in particular were obviously doing Nazi salutes. They got arrested. It's ob- you know, obviously a criminal offence in Germany. Um, but they just make it. They just make it unpleasant. And and as I say, I think the depressing thing is you rather hope some of that stuff. You know, it was twenty four years ago that the Good Friday Agreement was signed. You rather hope that some of that stuff dies out. But it's just not dying out. It's being passed on. And these 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 guys think it's clever. And you know, one of the things that saddened me a bit was there were people coming up to us and going up to the police going, what's the problem? What's the, we're just having fun. You know, why is this a story? And they, they can't even appreciate how unpleasant they are making it for everyone else. You know, other England fans are walking by going, this is awful. You know, we don't want to, you know, we, we don't, we don't want to be associated with this. They're embarrassed by it. And, 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 you know, even what a few tweets I've done and the piece I've done so far, we're, we're doing a film, which we're putting up tomorrow and, and I'm writing a piece about it, which will run tomorrow um, for Saturday's paper. Um, 
you know, I, I'm getting reaction on Twitter basically saying, what's the problem? 13, 13 arrests, four and a half thousand people. What's the big deal? No story. But it's not about that. It, yet, yet, yet there was no, there was no, there, there, was, there was no rioting. There was no massive clash with the police. I think partly because the German police, German authorities saw the potential for trouble. They, they brought 700 more police officers into the city for that couple of days. And it was so heavily policed like outside the ground um, where I had to go and get my press pass um, um, at the ground uh, on Tuesday. You know, I, I had to go um, and I was suddenly among thousands and thousands of Germany fans. And the difference was just, you know, so striking. It was just, it was just like, it was, it was like queuing for a pop concert, you know, and, and everyone was just really calm, really lovely, lots of families, lots of women, you know, just, the, the, just, the, you know, just a really nice crowd to be among as you're filtering through trying to find where your press passes. But the point was, even there, massive police presence, lots of mounted police. And they basically, they just thought, right, we're going to police this so heavily, you know, you'd have to be mad to to, to start really kicking off because, you know, the, the, as I say, when we were in this square, you're thinking if you do push this too far, you're in serious trouble here because these guys are just going to, they're just going to take you out. You know, they're, 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 they were so well organized. There were so many of them, you know, they're, they're, they're in all the right gear. They're armed. They've got batons. They've got guns. It, you know, it's, it's serious stuff. You, you're going to be crazy standing there in your Stone Island shorts and your Adidas trainers to think that you're going to, that you're going to come out on top in, in, in that clash. Um, but it, it's, it's just, it's that element and they've got to try and discourage it. Is that something that then we need to learn here in the United Kingdom? Uh, you know, this is an international match. I know before you've gone to see club games. Obviously, there are other games going on up and down the country on a, a normal domestic football weekend. But we have seen bad scenes at Wembley, obviously, most notably that that Euro 2000 um, tour and 20 final. Um, is it something that we need to learn here? Something from the Germans that maybe, and I, I, look, most football fans would say maybe they don't want to see it, but maybe we need it. Um you know, more forceful policing, if I can phrase it like that, more in-your-face policing? Well, well that, well, that was the thing. It was uh, it was actually, and, and one of the points I'll make is it wasn't that forceful, the policing. There was a heavy presence, but they were very restrained. They were very composed. The fact is they didn't go in and start battering people. They weren't spraying CS gas in their faces. And that's the difference. And one of the, con you know, one of the things I was going to, was going to say is that, you know, the, the British, the British police were saying that the Germans policed it the way they would have policed it. Um, um, where you try and communicate first that, that, that they have, you know, in the, in the final bar that we were in, they have, um, they call them dialogue officers, right? So before they go in and close the bar, what they do is they send in officers who 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 are who aren't dressed as you know they're not dressed as riot police they, they they've got caps on and that and they go in and they go and talk to the fans and they say guys we're going to shut this bar you know enough's enough um yeah it, 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 yeah it's getting out of hand we're we're shutting the bar you guys need to calm down and we saw that with the british officers as well the british football policing guys it, the, it has changed. Their approach has changed. And they'll, by their own admission, they'll say, yeah, 20, 30 years ago, they'd have been much more aggressive. You know, the, you know, the, the truncheons would have come out. The, the horses would have gone in. 
it's a much more of a community policing approach now. And what you see with those officers, and you know, we were with the guys, we were with a, a, a sergeant called uh, Lizzie, who is the sergeant for, for, for the West Midlands, and she works across about six clubs. And then we were with a guy called Andy, who is uh, the West Ham's dedicated football officer. And what they try and do is, you know, they're standing around these squares and they see the, the lads that are, are really starting to push it. You know, there were, there were lads that were, that were deliberately trying to provoke a response from the police. And what you'll see is they'll suddenly, they'll take them to one side and they'll just say, mate, if you don't calm down, you're going to get arrested. You know, you need to calm down because they, you know, they, 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 yeah, they're really, really trying to, to, to goad these guys with, with, with the most offensive chanting that they can think of basically. And, and they, they do try and do that. And so actually compared to what we saw in Paris, it's a much more, I think, sensible approach, but also an effective approach in that you don't just suddenly treat them immediately like criminals. You try and say, guys, this is unpleasant. Can you just calm it down? Can you move on? Can you, can, can you, can you break up a bit? Can you go and have a, drink somewhere else and just just you know get down from that table stop singing that song you know and 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 that was the approach and it was as i say there was a heavy presence you which meant that you'd have to really really be out of your mind to 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 to, to think right i'm gonna have a crack at these guys because as i say there would have only been one winner um um but but it, it's 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 it, it was it was really interesting to see. It was really interesting to see. It's fascinating listening to this because, you know, having travelled with England, uh, I think what you you kind of putting a bit of meat on the bone in terms of describing, you know, what I've seen, which is it's a it's a particular demographic and a particular sort of problem group. Um, isn't the majority of fans, but is 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 not going away as you say, and is a you know this is almost like the new generation of it. But I'm I'm looking at Friday night, September, Milan, which is England's next big away game. I just wondered if if you picked up any you know concerns or or, or chats with the, the the police guys you were with about that particular game because that that to me seems like a I remember a Friday night game in Amsterdam a few years ago that was a particular problem. I mean, are they worried about that? And 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 what about Qatar as well? Is there any sense that these this element will be going to Qatar or? Yeah, the, 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 they are worried because the point they make. And and I sat down. We sat down with Mark Roberts, the you know the head of the football policing unit on um, on on Tuesday. Um, and the point they make is that their concern with this is that the minority create an image for the majority so what they what 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 you know what happened at the weekend uh, at the start of the week rather is that they then will be trying to communicate to the italian police to the qatari police that this isn't please don't treat all our fans the same yeah we have this we have this group they are a problem um just on that latter question Johnny, I, I don't think they will go to Qatar. I think there's an expectation that it will be the older fans that make it to Qatar just because it's so expensive. You know, yeah, well, we know ourselves as as journalists that it's, you know, when we're talking about this with the desk, it, you know, hotels are 300 pounds a night. It's, you know, it's it's the typical, it's the usual thing of, 
of that. So, so they don't expect a lot of these young lads to be able to afford to go to Qatar. Um, I think Qatar is going to be interesting though, because they obviously are um, not normally prepared for this kind of event. And I think that there's going to be a lot of officers coming in from Turkey and they may have a different approach to policing to say the German and British police. Um, you know, the, the, the view of the, of the British police uh, after Monday night was that in different countries, that group would have been dealt with very differently and perhaps an awful lot more aggressively. Um, so, so I think they're less concerned about Qatar because of the demographic that they think will actually go there, that will have the financial resource to go there. But yeah, Italy, they, they will now be trying to say, look, you know, it is a minority. We are trying to deal with it. The fact of the matter is that, that, that they will take they will take um, video evidence collected by different broadcasters, by us, by the German um, um, authorities they were filming. And in, in a lot of cases, what they'll be trying to do is identify the particular problem individuals that were in Munich this week, and they'll, they'll, they'll try and give them banning orders. They'll try and stop them. You know, the fact of the matter is there was a, uh, you know, a fan, one of the England fans, someone that was known to the police um, from a particular club, you know, they knew all about him. Um, he got stopped at Heathrow uh, this week tr trying to get on the plane with a knife. Um, and, and, you know, his mates were, you know, his mates were in, 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 in Munich. And it was interesting actually that the, the, the guys we were shadowing actually asked us not to come with them to meet those particular guys. It's, it's from one particular club. They know they're a problem and they wanted to go and deal with them on their own without, without us, with our camera. Um, which is fair enough, you know, but at certain points they've, that they had a job to do and they don't always want a TV camera, you know, following them. So, um, you know, there, 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 there are these issues and it's symptomatic of what we've seen all year. Yeah, you know, the, the, the thrust of the piece I did in February was, was the fact that there is this younger element coming in that is starting to engage in this violent disorder. Um, as I say, this week in Munich, it didn't turn violent. Um, but I do think a lot of that was down to the, the composure and the patience of the German officers. Matt Lawton, thank you for joining us uh, on the Game Podcast. Remember to check out uh, Matt's piece right now, Germany versus England, unsavoury chance, the extent of fan disorder as police descend on Allianz Arena. You'll find it uh, if you search for Matt's articles as well. Appreciate it, Matt. So before we go on the Game Podcast, um, there are some transfer rumours floating about. Yes, it is that time of year. Um, there's lots. There's a lot popping off. I don't know if you guys are like me in WhatsApp groups about what clubs need what players, who's bottled it in terms of signing players, who's, who's about to go and win the Champions League based on their new signings, all that sort of stuff. I'm enjoying that immensely at the moment. But anyway, let's start with one of those. Um, Liverpool. For me, very good to see the approach that Liverpool take in the transfer market. They are essentially future-proofing their club. They are striking while the iron's hot, while they've got one of the best teams in world football, one of the best managers in world football. And what they're trying to do is bring in young talent who can flourish under Jurgen Klopp. 
paying a little bit more of a premium than they maybe have previously for these younger players. But like I say, they've earned a lot of money given their success recently. And why not cash in uh, while you can by signing Darwin Nunez, um, reportedly close to a £68 million transfer to Anfield, 34 goals in all competitions for Benfica last year. Manchester United were heavily linked to him. They look set to be disappointed and we'll come to more of their disappointment very shortly, by the way. Um, But let's talk about Liverpool. What does his signing, if it does get over the line, mean for Liverpool, do you think, Gregor? Sadio Mane will will definitely go, we imagine. Maybe Roberto Firmino too. Will will that weaken Liverpool? Well, it's like a a, a transition that we've seen kind of coming down the tracks for a little while now. Mane's Mane's 30, although he's still a huge player for Liverpool. You know, scored 23 goals in all competitions last season. Um, Really stepped up in a lot of big games as well. Uh, scored some really important goals. Uh, he's, as, he's, as he's 30 and he's he's made it clear he, he's not going to sign another contract, it's good business to get to get a sizable fee for him. Um, and as you say, Liverpool are the best at future-proofing their squad, at, at having you know um, the right recruitment model in place to 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 pick out who's who, who's who's going to be a, a player to fit into their squad. You look at the way Luis Diaz fit in seamlessly and well more than that he made a huge impact in the second half of last season and Nunes is someone who's you know his ascent has been has been very quick he was playing for Almeria Almira in, in um, Spain's second division just over two years ago so um, but last season he was he was scoring goals at a ridiculous rate and he's it's his kind of physical attributes as well that are that are gonna make him a good fit for Liverpool, it would seem. His his pace, his size, his ability to play across all three of those front uh those forward that forward line for Liverpool. Um so yeah, it's good it, as I say, it's it's part of a kind of regeneration of Liverpool, particularly Liverpool's front three that we've seen coming down the tracks for a little while and, and still actually a little bit up in the air as to whether Salah is going to be part of that that change as well. Johnny, Liverpool getting stronger or weaker here? Well, I mean, I mean losing Mane will be a significant blow to them, but that that looks like it's going to happen. So, in terms of what you do about that, this is a pretty decisive and I'd say pretty impressive move, and it is typical of of Liverpool how quickly they move um, and how you know this is quite this could be a record breaking fee for them, but. Liverpool's valuations are usually spot on. And if you think about the Van Dijk and Allison transfers a few years ago, which were both record signings, but then within a few months looked like bargains, um, it might be that they end up doing it again with this guy because there aren't many number nines around in world football. You know, it's a, it's, they're a diminishing breed and, and those who have the ability to... Um, you know, plays elite number nines, score in the Champions League, um, lead the line, be flexible, head the ball. This aren't that many, which is why Haaland was so coveted, um, but also why Nunez is, is wanted by top clubs. So it looks it looks like a, a classic Liverpool um, modern day transfer, and you know, I, I, another. I'm I watched Darwin Nunez every week, but. He looked pretty good in the Champions League and, and it looks like a pretty smart buy given his age profile, given the scarcity of what he represents. Yeah, I spoke to a Portuguese football expert yesterday who essentially said two things. Firstly, his development has been incredible over the last couple of years. He seems to get better every single game. 
but and this person was from Merseyside, um, said that that he will fit in with what Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp are trying to do, and, and as Gregor pointed out, his ability to play across the forward line. So it looks like Liverpool could be getting a player um, for a long, long time. I think that's important as well. Just as you see Haaland sign for Manchester City, could we see two great strikers go head to head at two of the biggest clubs for the next decade or so? We shall see. Um, anyway, should we pick up on Manchester United's disappointment? Because they're obviously going to miss out on Darwin Nunez. Um, Frankie de Jong can't decide whether he wants to play for Manchester United or not as, as sort of, you know, Barcelona try and edge him towards the exit door. And then you've got this Jurian Timber transfer in the background at Ajax. We can't even sign one of Eric Ten Hag's former players who's playing in the Eredivisie. So, you know, the disappointment is strong. Let's call it that already. But I wanted to talk about Frankie de Jong most importantly as to whether Manchester United should prolong this much longer, 85 million euros. I think Louis van Gaal came out after the match in Cardiff and said, Frankie de Jong showed why he's worth 112 million euros. So thanks for that, Louis. One for your former club there. Appreciate it. Um, But yeah, look, my view on it, my question on it is, should Manchester United be dragged into any more sagas? Are they maybe looking a little bit over their current station by trying to sign some of these players who are going to want to go to to better sides if those better sides do come in for them. Johnny, what do you think? I'd say put the money down and, and get De Jong and get him now. Uh, I've been talking about Liverpool's decisiveness and paying what looks like big fees um, that you find out are, are, are actually decent fees because it, for them it's about getting the right player at the right time and I think De Jong would be absolutely that signing for United now. Um in the years I've covered them, I think the biggest flaw has has, has been not replacing um, the class in midfield that they once had, of Scholes and, and Carrick and and so on. That's been a decade long and more issue really for them. And De Jong would be that top class midfielder. His, his contribution to the winning goal last night for Holland was. Fantastic. What, a, what a run and, and, and the awareness. And so that's what he does. You know, he carries the ball so well from midfield as well as being a passer. And he would be the player that Eric Ten Hag could, um, you know, use as his, his, his kind of general on the pitch really to implement his ideas. Him and Van der Beek together all of a sudden looks like gives Eric Ten Hag a really good chance of, of getting off the ground with, with how he wants to play. And, yeah, I, 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 I he, they, the Glazer, it just comes down to spending money. And I think the Glazers need to back their new man. And if Ten Hag could sign Timber and De Jong and nobody else, I think that'd be a brilliant transfer window. United need a lot more than that. But as a start, um, as two signings that would raise the team and allow him to start implementing a style of play, I think they, you know, there could be no better really than, than getting those two. So they should do it now. I don't think they get close to the top four next season if they just sign those two. And I think Frankie de Jong will just cut an incredibly frustrated figure if he's surrounded by, let's be frank, some of the dross that's currently in that Manchester United changing room. So for me, I think they need at least five transfers this summer. I just think they need to be realistic, Gregor. This is my point. Okay, de Jong is a great player. He would obviously improve Manchester United. But you can't spend... I mean, how long are they going to spend? A month? Six weeks? Two months? I don't know how long they want to waste when other good players are signing for other clubs around Europe who could improve their side. Not to mention the fact that it's probably a big wedge of their budget too. Um, how, how long would you spend waiting for De Jong? 
I think Johnny summed it up in that he's, you know, we look at, we take Liverpool as a bit of a kind of a standard bearer for this and, and the, they don't get involved in these sagas very rarely. Um, and if they, if they feel they have a valuation and, uh, you know, the player's worth it, then they pay the money. Um, Manchester United need to need to stop getting embroiled in sagas like this. I mean, look, but part of, you know, part of it might be now, with, with all due respect to Manchester United, they're at a real low ebb. And like, you, you know, Frankie de Jong knows, will know the manager and that might be a draw, but you're joining a club that is like at the beginning of yet another major reboot. And how attractive is that? I don't know. Um, so, uh, absolutely, I think, he would be a great player for Manchester United. Brilliant player. But you're right in that it, you can't drag on for the whole summer and then the thing that you don't have any confidence in is Manchester United having, you know, who's their, who's their next choice. Liverpool this, Liverpool this summer are going through a, a change of the sporting director. Michael Edwards has, has just left and Julian Ward's taken over. And, you know, you all... To all intents and purposes, it looks like it's a seamless trans, you know, uh, handover. Um, as there's still a lot of uncertainty about what Manchester United's setup is behind the scenes, and you know, I, I just I, I think he's he's an obvious choice. But who 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 would they be looking for next? I mean, it says a lot to me about Manchester United at the moment that a Barcelona side who. Um, who are really underperforming by their own high standards where players have had to take pay cuts. They're still managing to get transfers over the line faster than Manchester United and they remain a better proposition for for big players, clearly, than Manchester United do right now, which I think says a lot about the sad state of affairs at Old Trafford. But I'm sure we'll revisit this transfer and the club um, in the not-too-distant future. There is another player that I wanted to mention. It's not necessarily a transfer rumour, but Bakayu Saka of Arsenal has been linked with a possible move to Manchester City and Liverpool. Now, he's got two years left on his deal, You know, he's come through the academy there. I think a lot of Arsenal fans love him and he loves the club. But for me personally, the question is really whether he should wait another year, get to one year left on his current contract before deciding to extend his deal. I think if I was advising him, I'd say you need to see what Mikel Arteta is going to do over the next season, whether he will continue his development as a coach, whether the team will continue its development and what the club will be like in the transfer window in supporting his ideas because I don't think they're going to get to Champions League status if they continue to try and find that that diamond in the rough in every single one of their deals, pretty much. Um, so, does Saka wait another year? Jonathan? I think he does, but I also don't think he signs a new contract until, as you, as you say, you he, he's kind of got a better sense of where Arsenal are going. He's such a good such a good player. He needs to be playing at the very elite level. He needs to be in the Champions League at a Champions League club. Um he owes, you know, he owes plenty to Arsenal as as one of their principal um, homegrown talents, and that that's why I don't think he should walk away or think about getting out now. I think the ideal scenario for him would be to be in an Arsenal team that was in the Champions League. Um, so, so I think I think it would come down to this season, and, and I think that's what he will do. He's he's got the same advisor that that guided um, Jaden Sancho's. Career um, and uh, I think Eddie Nketiah as well is one of his clients. And um, there's a number of top players and agents now who are, who are pretty savvy about not 
allowing players to be tied down too early and allowing them to keep their options open. And I think that's what Saka will do and that's what I would do in his his position. Um, but I can absolutely see why Liverpool or Manchester City would want him and how he would fit in there because you know he is one of those players capable of playing right at that level um, that's, that's not at a Champions League club at the moment. Gregor, views? We know you're a secret Arsenal fan, so go on. No, I think I think you want to wait another year and see see whether the, you know Arteta's kind of journey looked like it was heading towards Champions League football until the death, and um, I think you will probably want to see whether he can he can get there with Arsenal. And I think, but I, I agree. Within the next year or two, if 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 it doesn't continue, if Arsenal don't continue to progress and get back among that. That group of clubs challenging, you know, making the Champions League really every season. Then I think he will have a decision to make because he's undoubtedly a player of that that level. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think you know, especially if those two clubs are going to be possibly interested, those two great managers, you know, even for your career, it's a big decision sign in five years. Uh, maybe more with Arsenal, um, especially if you're going to be left in a situation where if things aren't going right, you're not going to have an out. Um, so also, by the way, if you wait another year, you're probably, if you do stay at Arsenal, going to get a much bigger contract. So why not wait it out? We'll see what Bakayu Saka and his advisors t- um, want to do going forward. Just very quickly on Arsenal, because they have been linked with a couple of Manchester City players, Gabriel Jesus, Alexander Zinchenko. Is this the right approach for Arsenal right now, Jonathan? Well, getting those two would, would be a brilliant approach. I'm just not sure they, they will get them to, to be honest. I mean, they need, they, yes, Jesus would be the priority um, as, a, as, a, as a striker and, and that looks the slightly more likely deal if they could do it. Um, but it'd be expensive for them. Um I, I think Zinchenko is just such a, a Guardiola player that that I'd be really surprised if 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 he's allowed to leave. But um, Arsenal have done okay with the signings in the last year year and a half, and they've done it by you know if you think of the Odegaard deal by by picking a couple of talents from um, you know unwanted talents at, at the top top clubs. So that's not been a bad approach for them. I think the the, the building has been quite good. Um, but it has to happen, you know, again, as we mentioned with Saka, there's almost a kind of time clock on it now for Arsenal and they have to make that leap pretty quickly. So this, they, if they can't, you know, Jesus would help them make that leap. Zinchenko would, don't think they'll get both, and they have, but they have to get players like that this summer to, to push on. We shall see. We'll see what happens with these transfers. We'll keep a close eye in the coming weeks. That is it, though, for the game podcast. Jonathan Northcroft, Gregor Robertson, thank you very much. My thanks to Matt Lawton once again, and thank you all for listening. Remember, uh, sign up for The Times and The Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism. You can check it out at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Uh, we will see you on, what day is it? Thursday? We'll see you on Monday. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 